anyone else kind of saying, hey, there's something special going on here. You might be thinking, well, I don't see anything special going on here. That might be the case. Um, but sometimes there is, there is just like a, a unique moment that we can be in. And I, and I think it's something that you, you never want to attempt to manufacture and you never want to presume and plan for. Um, but these things happen. And I, I, I just get this sense for myself even right now that, that there, is a, there is a pushing that God is doing. He's, uh, it might be gentle for some of us. It might be a little nudge behind our backs. Uh, but for some of us, it might be a, you know, a, like, hey, let's, uh, let's get going here kind of moment. And God is inviting us into something different from where we've been. God is inviting us into a new space, into a new place, into a new, I hate to say level because I think that's a, that's a phrase, a level, you know, at a higher level, that, that can be actually very misleading. Uh, but maybe in a deeper place, maybe in a um, more aware place, maybe in a place of greater obedience or greater passion, greater joy for the Lord and the things that he set before us. And so... You know, I w- I'd like to just take this moment and go right into what we have planned for, t- for our message today. And let's see here. Pardon me. Well, I was going to do that. And then I'm using this new program. And... Um, and I have, I seem to have lost all of my notes. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay, because we're, we're with the Lord here today, and we're just going to go for it. So uh, what, I was, what I was thinking about coming into this morning, uh, this week as I was preparing about this morning, is I was actually thinking about uh, presidential speeches. And it's not something that I've always been interested in, but as in my adult life, I've been drawn to these idea of presidential speeches, and particularly inaugural speeches and farewell addresses. I first became alert to these when I was reading a biography on George Washington. And George Washington, you, you know, probably was the first president of the United States after we had our Constitution. And he was, he was a war hero. He was a revolutionary you know, founding father person. He was highly respected, and he was essentially unanimously elected as president. Um, this is before there were political parties, so he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't from the right or the left. He was just the guy. He was just it. And the country said, hey, we want him to be president. And part of the issue was, and it's hard to think about this today, but when the country was founded, we, we were afraid that if we had one person in charge that we would end up under another tyranny, under another king. And so even things like, uh, you know, we talk about Mr. President. The original uh, leaders in the country wanted to call him Your Excellency or even Your Highness, which just means someone who's high. And George Washington was the one who said, no, you will call me Mr. because I am a citizen I'm one of you. And a president, we think of president as this great big position. A president is just kind of like the guy down the street who leads the club. He presides over a meeting. It wasn't meant to be this big high title. 
So when George Washington served two terms, the pressure was on him to serve a third, and he said, I'm not going to do it. And he gave his farewell address explaining why he wasn't going to serve a third term. And he set a precedent that although it wasn't followed absolutely, it eventually became law that presidents can only serve twice. He warned the country against partisanship and political parties and how they can divide a country. He believed that political parties were bad for our country. Uh, And he also warned the country against getting entangled in foreign wars. So the French Revolution was going on and he was encouraging them to stay out of it. Andrew Jackson, I think, our seventh president, was the next person, the next president to actually have a farewell address. And in that, he warned about, Andrew Jackson was the first populist president, so he warned about these powerful moneyed interests like banks and corporations that were going to uh, inhibit our freedoms as a nation. And then, you know, there's those other famous speeches. This isn't a farewell address, but, you know, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he says, four score and seven years ago, our founders came to this continent to form, I think, he says, a more perfect union um, built on the idea that all men are created equal. And then there's that wonderful JFK speech where he says, ask not what you can do. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And so presidents use these different speeches, these different opportunities, to share with the country kind of what was on their heart, what was on their mind, what was most important to them. And in in the case of these farewell addresses, uh, it, it reminded us, like Eisenhower, in his farewell address, uh, he, was, he was giving the country a warning. Washington gave the country a warning. Jackson gave the country a warning. It was often this, hey, these are the most important things I want you to remember when I'm gone. And not dead gone, but just out of the picture gone. And in the same way today, we're going to look at some of the last words of Jesus. Some of the final words that Jesus shared before he ascended into heaven and left this earthly plane. And so if you will, turn with me to John chapter 20. And we're really just going to be in a few short verses, 19 through 23. It's not a long passage. And and this sermon in some ways is a little different than other sermons because it's not a single theme that we're looking at. We're actually looking at a series of moments in the final weeks of Jesus' life on this earth. Oh, you know what? I know why my notes aren't here, because for some reason I am in last week's sermon. Let's see if this is a whole new thing. I'm learning how this thing works. Uh, Let's see here. I have no idea how to do this. That's what happens when you use new technology. Let's see. I'm going to start over. And let's see if it will let me do this. Huh. Well, it won't. So it... It thinks it's uh, in the right spot, but it's not. All right, well, bye-bye to that. We'll do the best we can. We'll wing it here. Uh, 
So in John chapter 20, Jesus, you know the story. If you were here last week, we talked about it. We were looking in Luke 24, but it's the same story. On Sunday morning, the three days after Jesus, the third day after Jesus was crucified and put in the grave, on Sunday morning, Mary and some of the other women go to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial because it had been the Sabbath evening. They didn't have time to prepare him properly, so they left him there in the tomb, and they, were, they had to um, come back. And so they come back, and there was a stone that had been rolled over the grave so that Jesus' body was not tampered with. The Roman authorities were concerned about that. And they get there, and the stone is rolled away, and they look in the tomb, and Jesus' body isn't there. And these angels appear, Jesus appears, they run back, they tell the disciples, Peter and John rush to the tomb and find exactly as they said, no one's there. And last week we talked about how it was hard even then, even in that moment for them to believe. It was hard for these founders of our faith in a sense, you know, the, the apostles, the ones who, who helped establish the church, for them to believe that Jesus was really alive. But what happens next is Jesus begins to appear. We saw last week and read the story of Jesus appearing to these two disciples who are on their way to Emmaus. And he kind of interrupts their journey and talks to them about himself through the scriptures. And they realize at the end that it's Jesus. And they go back. And if you remember, and we alluded to it last week, they go back and they find the apostles And they hear that Jesus had appeared to Peter, and then they shared the story of Jesus appearing to them. Well, today we're going to look at the story of of Jesus appearing to Peter and the other apostles. So in uh, verse 19 of John chapter 20, so pull out your Bibles and follow along with us. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. So what Jesus is doing is he's coming to reveal himself and also to reveal his intentions. And there's just a few things that he says, but before we get into them, just, you know, a couple of things to notice here. You know, where are the apostles? Where are the disciples? They've locked themselves in a room because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Their leader has just been murdered, and they're afraid that they might be rounded up and either put in jail or murdered themselves. So they're afraid. And John makes a point to say that the door was locked. Why does he do that? Because Jesus just appears in the room. Jesus just shows up in the middle of the place where they are. He doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't come through an open entry. He just appears. This is pretty miraculous. And then what he's going to do is he's going to show them the scars in his wrists and the scars in his side. Why does he do that? Because something about Jesus' resurrection body is both real and tangible. He eats, he drinks, he cooks, he talks. But he also goes through walls and people don't recognize him when they see him. There's something weird about his body, meaning it's not what we would necessarily expect. So he shows them these scars, the scars in his wrist from those nails that had been put in his in his wrist to hold him to the cross, and then the scar in his side where they pierced him with a spear to make sure that he was dead. And so they know this is Jesus. And they're overjoyed, it says. 
They're overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But look at what he says. Look at what he says. The very first thing he says is, peace be with you. In fact, he says it twice. And he actually says it three times in John chapter 20 because he says it again in verse 26. So peace be with you is just a normal greeting. It's just your everyday kind of average greeting that you would experience if you were a, a Jewish person speaking Hebrew, especially back then. And even today, it's, it's shalom alechem. Shalom alechem. And, and there's also an Arabic version, assalamu alaikum, I think is how you pronounce it. And so it's this common greeting. And actually, Sonia and I were really fond of this Netflix show called Shtizel. And Shtizel is about this uh, Haredi Jewish or ultra-Orthodox Jewish family that lives in Jerusalem. And this family, I mean, it's really a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, highly, drama, highly dramatic story of this family and how they live. And you get a glimpse into that kind of life. But the whole show is in Hebrew. Well, there's a little bit in English and there's a little bit in Yiddish, but it's mostly in Hebrew. And there's subtitles at the bottom. And what you notice is if you kind of like pay attention and not just read, but, you know, they'll greet each other and they say, Shalom, Shalom. And at the bottom it says, hello. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, but when they use that word, it just means hello. That's how it's translated for us English speakers. So it's kind of like just this common greeting. But it's not just a common greeting. There is this undertone. It's not just hello. It's kind of like our family jokes that when you sneeze, what do you say when someone sneezes? Bless you, or God bless you. But really, when someone sneezes, what you're really saying is, hey, I noticed that you sneezed, and I'm acknowledging it, right? Because people who aren't believers, people who don't believe in blessings, people who don't believe in God say bless you. And what they're saying is, hey, I noticed you sneezed. I acknowledge it. Let it be known to the world that I saw that you sneezed. You know, that's kind of what it means. But it means more than that. There's still this undertone. There's still this undercurrent of, hey, I'm also speaking, and in other languages they say salut or salud, or it's health. I'm speaking health to you. I'm speaking blessing to you. It has become colloquially, hey, I notice you sneezed, but underneath that there's still that current of, and I send a blessing your way. So when Jesus says, Shalom Alechem, peace be with you, twice, John's not just recording his hello. You know, read the gospel. See how many times you notice that John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, how many times do they record someone saying, hey, how's it going? They don't. They just get right to the meat of the conversation. And because Jesus says it twice, and, and then he says it a week later with Thomas, and we'll get to that next week, but John records it three times. John notices that it's more than just a greeting. Jesus is doing something different. He's saying, look, I want you to hear this phrase, peace be with you, because if you recall, before I died, I told you my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I tell you these things so that you might have my peace. Uh, Astra, can you pull those slides up, or can someone pull those slides up from uh, John 14 and John 16? 
Let's just get those up one after the other. Um, you know, in John 14 is when Jesus says that his peace he gives you. Can you do that, Daryl? I don't have my, I can't. Yes. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. That's in verse 27. You know, he's, he's kind of saying, there's, when I leave, because he's about to die, when I leave, I'm not leaving you with nothing. I'm leaving you with my peace. And then in chapter 16, uh, he's got a, a similar phrase. He says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Now, what is peace? What is the shalom that Jesus is talking about? Well, at the end of the day, shalom is the promise that God gives to his people when they enter into the kingdom. You know, we saw it in part, or they saw it in part, when God brought them into the promised land, and he says, you'll have peace on every side. You'll have shalom on every side. Shalom means more than peace. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means, it means to be secure. It means to rest in the goodness of the blessing of God. It, it means all these things. So Jesus is using a common greeting, but he means more than that. And that's why he repeats it. And that's why John records it. Jesus is saying, look, I told you before, I'm leaving you with my peace. I went on the cross and I said, it is finished. It is finished. And now I'm back to tell you, I did it. You're getting the peace now. He says, peace be with you. Peace be upon you. And so the disciples were, and the early church clearly understood that G this is Jesus inaugurating the kingdom in a new way. You know, when Jesus preached around Galilee and in Jerusalem, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning the kingdom of God is imminent. It's coming. It's about to be here. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. The peace of God is here. You now are able to enter into that great rest that we read about in Hebrews 4 and in Genesis 1 and in the Ten Commandments, to rest in God, to experience that wholeness, that completeness, that fullness of God and His kingdom in our lives. And so Jesus is kind of setting up, He's setting the stage for this, this new understanding that's coming. And so, Daryl, if we can go back to those slides that have our phrases there, what Jesus says next is, after he says, peace be with you, he says, as the Father has sent me. As the Father has sent me. So we're going to have to go back, Daryl. Sorry. Yeah, you can just leave that one there. That's fine. As the Father has sent me. How has the Father sent Jesus? How did he send Jesus? What is he? I mean, but he's, he, it's a preface to what's to come. But we need to understand the preface. Well, the book of John is the context for how God sent Jesus. Who, does Jesus. who is Jesus in the book of John? He's the Word of God who was with God in the beginning. And He was God. Right? He's the light that comes into the darkness. He's the life for all men. Jesus is the creator of everything the creator of the universe the creator of all that is right and so for john and not just for john but it's you know this is how john understands it but it's true and it's true for us john is saying this jesus was sent by the father because he was with the father 
And what did he do? He became, he took on flesh. He incarnated. I love how, you know, the, I love words. So incarnate means to go into meat, into flesh. It, you know, carne, if you get a carne guisada uh, in, in a Dominican restaurant, it's stewed beef. Jesus took on the beef. He became flesh. He became like you and me. He's no longer just spirit, but you can touch him. And he becomes like us, and he walks with us. It says he, he uh, made his home with us. He made his home with us. He became like us in every way, right? The Bible also says. So here's this being who's not from here, who comes here and is living here like us. For what purpose? Well... John the Baptist says that he's the Lamb of the God, Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And we read in John 3.16 that God sent him out of love. He loved the world, so he sent his son. Right? And if we believe in him, we will not perish but have everlasting life. So God sent one like himself, who was not of this earth, into the earth, who took on flesh, who came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world so that we could be saved. And then how does Jesus live his life while he's here? Well, he's perfectly obedient to the Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing and I only say what I hear the Father saying. And then we, get, we see his struggle before he goes to the cross, but he says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. I would like to not die on that cross. I would like, there's a part of me that would like to not experience that pain and that separation from you and the condemnation that will come on me as I take upon myself the sins of the world, but not my will, yet yours be done. So Jesus is perfectly obedient. And then he dies on the cross, sacrificing himself for you and for me, and then he's raised from the dead. And this is where he stands now. Remember, this is the night of Easter. This is the first day that Jesus is raised from the dead. Says that evening, here's Jesus raised from the dead. This is the one, and this is how he has been sent. So he says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Well, what does that mean? By implication, what it means is that when we come to God through Jesus Christ, when we receive the gospel and our sins are forgiven, do you understand that we're made a new creation? Do you understand that we're citizens of a different kingdom? We are no longer natives. We are no longer from here. Jesus was sent by God from outside the world, and we, in a sense, are taken outside the world, and then Jesus sends us back into the world. This is important. You know, one of the biggest challenges that believers face is remembering and believing that they are no longer citizens of this world. It's so hard because everything here wants to pull you into its vortex, whether it's politics or entertainment or job and finances and money, whether it's power, whether it's, you know... Who's going to trim the limbs on that tree that hangs over from your neighbor's yard? 
whatever the silly thing can be, it just sucks you in and it wants you to believe that you're grounded here and you're part of this first and foremost. But like Jesus remembered his identity, we're called to remember our identity. We're not from here anymore. We're now tourists. Right? We're visitors. We're immigrants. This is not our home. And Jesus is saying, as I was sent, so you'll be sent. So this is not our home, but we're to integrate into this world once more, but with a purpose and a mission. Not like we were before we knew Christ, but now we, have a, we, we are to also incarnate. We're to be a part of this world and its systems without being controlled by them, without being caught up by them, without mistakenly believing that they matter more than what Jesus and God are telling us and trying to do through us. And so Jesus says, now I'm sending you. Now, we're not sent exactly like Jesus. We don't need to die for other people's sins. There are people who try to die for other people's sins, right? We, we think that we need to give everything we have to save other people. But newsflash, you can't save other people. But you know what you can do? You can faithfully introduce them to the one who can. That's how we are sent like Jesus. Jesus really was sent to proclaim his own salvation, his, the, the, the work of, uh, that he was doing for our salvation. So we come and we do the same thing. We proclaim what Jesus has done for our salvation. You know? And, and we, we looked at this recently in Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians, we have this ministry of reconciliation. Ministry. And what does that mean? It means we're proclaiming what Jesus has done. We're not reconciling people. Jesus already did it. We're just letting them know about it. We're leading them to the water, but we can't make them drink kind of thing. And then we need to be obedient. Jesus was obedient to his Father, and we're called to be obedient to Christ. Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I commanded you. Now, there's one piece that I haven't mentioned and that's how was Jesus able to do all these things? And one answer is, he's God. But that's not the whole answer. Because he's also human. He's also frail. He's also weak. Jesus had bad breath. You understand what I'm saying? How was he able to do these things? Well, at the very beginning, God gifts him the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus do? He gifts us the Holy Spirit. So he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Church, we're never meant to do these things on our own. Never. It's the biggest mistake possible to try. But now, what exactly is going on here? Because this passage has been interpreted in various ways, and actually some people have used it to argue that the story is not even true. Because when does the Holy Spirit come? Anyone? Pentecost. 
Where in the Bible does that happen? In Acts. It's in Acts. And, and, and yes, it's 50 days after Easter. So it's, it's in another, what, five weeks. So people have said, John doesn't know what he's talking about. He clearly missed the, uh, he missed the memo that the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet when he has Jesus saying this. But, and look what it says. What does your, your translation say on John 20, 22? Can someone read that out loud? Just real loud. That's right. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know why he would breathe on them? The word for spirit in Greek is pneuma. The word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. They both mean spirit. They both mean breath. They both mean wind. They both mean air. And so, of course, how does, how does, God, uh, how does God give man life in the Garden of Eden? He breathes life into him. He breathes spirit into him. Right, And so people say, oh, here, Jesus, he breathes on them and the Holy Spirit has come. Then what's going on in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes? Now, I don't want to get too deep into it, but in the original text, it doesn't say he breathed on them. You know what it says? He took a breath. He took a breath and he said, receive the Spirit. There's still that connection there. But it doesn't, it's not that Jesus breathed on them. It's just that he breathed. He breathed. So there's still that connection, but it's this symbolic thing. He's not saying you have it now. He's saying receive it. It's, kind of, it's technically an imperative. He doesn't say you are receiving it. He says receive it. It's, it's an encouragement to say this is imminent. Just like the kingdom of God was imminent and now it has come, the Holy Spirit is imminent and very soon he will come very soon. You know, it's kind of like when you graduate from high school or college. You know, you, you go to the ceremony, you walk across the stage, they give you a folder. I happen to have this ridiculously large folder that I got when I graduated from Gordon-Conwell with, you know, my, my uh, degree in here. And, um, you know, they hand it to you, they shake your hand the president of the university or the principal of the school shakes your hand and they say, well done. Right? And it's this powerful moment. And then you open up your binder, and what's inside? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Why? They don't trust you not to lose it is one reason. Also, you may be walking before you technically finish all your requirements for graduation. That happens. You might have a few things outstanding. Now, maybe you haven't paid all your dues yet. They're not giving you that paper until it's all done, right? But... There's something important in that moment, isn't there? It matters that you walked across that stage. It matters that the president shook your hand. It matters that they say, we now confer on you, whatever they're conferring on you, your diploma, your degree. Mine, oh, this is, guys, I, uh, I've, I've been conferred upon me a master of divinity. Who are they kidding <laughs> but I've got the paper. But it matters. Well, Jesus wasn't going to be there, just like the president's not there when you actually get your degree. Jesus isn't going to be there when the Spirit comes. But it matters that Jesus 
is there and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Because he's the, he's the president, right? He's the one who says, look guys, you've done a lot of hard work the last three years. You walked with me, you endured a lot. It's coming. And I just want to shake your hand. Well done. Not that we earn the Spirit, you understand, but it matters. So it's symbolic, but that doesn't mean it's not important. The Spirit hasn't come. How do we know the Spirit hasn't come yet, by the way? Because Peter's still a goof up. Because he's tempted to go back to his old job and not follow the way of Christ anymore. Because he still hasn't even been forgiven of denying Christ three times. When the Spirit comes in Pentecost, the disciples are totally different people. They're powerful. They're confident. They're courageous. These are cowering folks who are hiding in rooms. You know, it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then, why do they need to receive the Spirit? Well, because they've got a big job in front of them. This is another verse that can be very easily misunderstood. It says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You know, in some branches of the church, they take this and they take the, the part in Matthew where Jesus says, you are now Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And they say, look, the church has the authority to forgive sins. And not just the church, but Peter, who is the, who is the forerunner of our popes, for example, if you're a Roman Catholic, has the authority to forgive sin and to uh, pronounce forgiveness or unforgiveness on people. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, which may not surprise you. Uh, but again, we don't want to get too technical, but these, these verbs here, forgiven and not forgiven, in the Greek it says, if, any, if, if you forgive anyone's sins, and then it says, their sins are forgiven, which in the Greek is just one word, it's one verb. And then it says, if you do not forgive them, and the word for not forgive them is not just not forgive them. It's a totally different word that usually means like to grab a hold of something or restrain something. Uh, like when they were trying to catch Jesus in the crowd and he slipped away, they could not lay hold of him. They could not, and it's the same word. And he says, well, if you don't forgive them, then they are not forgiven. It's two Greek words. And, uh, but they're both passive verbs. So what's a passive verb? Like if I said, the ball was thrown to Mary. The ball was thrown to Mary. What's the action? Thrown. Well, who's the direct, what's the direct object? Hmm? Mary. Oh, is that right? No, the ball is the direct object and Mary's the indirect object. Who's the subject of the sentence? We don't know. We don't know who threw the ball. These are passive verbs. And really, the best way to translate it is probably, if you forgive anyone's sins, they stand forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they do not stand forgiven. And it reminds me, now we're going to go here. 
It reminds me of John 3. I already quoted John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. And he says he did not send his son to condemn the world. But look what it says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So what is this potentially this this statement of Jesus mean when he says if you forgive someone they'll be forgiven if you do not forgive them they will not be forgiven or they are not forgiven or they don't stand forgiven it's that as the followers of Christ fulfill that mission the thing that they're sent for that they're empowered for by the Holy Spirit which is to proclaim the gospel to point to, to Jesus and say look what he did trust in him the works already finished then if you believe him, if you believe the message, you are forgiven. If you reject the message, you stand condemned. So if you're preaching that message, you don't have to declare forgiveness on someone for them to be forgiven. What you're doing is acknowledging the forgiveness that's there when they believe. And if they reject the message, you don't have to declare condemnation. You simply acknowledge the condemnation that is there by virtue of fact that they have not believed. And so really, again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to empower us to preach the gospel. Now, are there other things Jesus calls us to do besides preaching the gospel? Absolutely. That's why we say we need to be obedient to him and all the things he tells us to do. But in focus here, in sharp laser focus is I think when Jesus says, peace be with you, the kingdom has come, right? The Father has sent me, I came on a mission, now I'm sending you, you have a mission. Receive the Holy Spirit so you can be empowered for that mission. And what is that mission? It's to proclaim the gospel so that the people of the world can either accept and be forgiven or reject and stand in their own condemnation. Now, that may not be a pleasant calling, but it is the calling. It is the calling. And it doesn't begin and end with that, but that's the core of it. That's the centrality of it. Now, church, what I don't want to do here today is say, and you're not doing it. Shame on you. What I want to do here today is I want to pick up on what was going on earlier this morning. I really do feel like God was saying, hey, it's okay. Go out a little further. Come with me. Let's do this. You know, I, I just get this image of a kid up on a high dive, and they're scared. And their dad comes up and says, I'll come out with you. Let's do this together. Hold my hand. Let's go out to the edge. Come out a little further than you were before and let's see how it feels. We don't have to jump until you're ready, but we are going to jump because I'm not going to leave you here because this isn't where the fun stuff is. The fun stuff is over the edge. And I feel like God's saying, come on, son, come on, daughter. I'm not going to move you faster than you can go, but we're going to take another step. And whatever happens, I'm not going to leave you here because this isn't fun. The good stuff's over the edge. And you know what I think? Oh, I, this is what I, I'm just going to put this out there. I believe a lot of Christians don't experience the joy of the Christian life because you're still 
on the board and you won't jump in the water. And that's not a condemnation. That's just like, hey, let's have a little more fun here than what we've been doing. I see Christians who are miserable. And sometimes I wonder, how can a Christian be miserable? How can you be miserable if you have Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about like clinical depression. I'm talking about just Christians who are cranky and who are like, I'm tired of this stuff and who, who don't want to do anything. And, and, and I think in part, the not wanting to do anything is why you get in that place to begin with. Take that step of courage. Take that step of faith. I think Jesus is telling us, hey, I love you. You can't fail in my love, right? It's kind of what you were saying, right? You can't fail in my love. And then Ileana, I think your encouragement and prayer was something like, let's not stay where we are, let's go forward, right? I mean, that was a part of it at least. And so let's connect it to what he has for us here. It's like Jesus is saying, I called you for something. And if you don't do it, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable. Just take one little step. Take that next brave, courageous step out on the board. And when you're ready, Jesus is going to hold your hand. And you guys are going to jump. And it's going to be the most exhilarating thing you've ever experienced in your life. That's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for before he leaves. That's what he's calling us to do today. You know, when Jesus appeared, this is my takeaway. I don't even know if you can read that. When Jesus appeared, he made clear what he had done for us. Okay? He brought the kingdom. He gave us his peace. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Right? He's done that. That's what he's done. And now we are able to be sent just like he was sent. And we can declare the good news of forgiveness of sins to a desperate world. Because look, when you do that, again, I talk about exciting. I just, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm wondering, have you ever led anyone to faith in Christ and they, you know, you, you shared the gospel with them, they received it with joy, and now they're a believer following after Jesus? Have you ever done that? It is the m- most exciting thing it's the most joyous thing that I can imagine in this life. I mean, it's up there at least in the top two or three. And again, it's not like, why aren't you doing it? It's like, hey, there's, there's some fun to be had. There's some joy to be experienced. There's some excitement to bring into your life. And you don't have to do it, you know, jumping out of airplanes and risking your life. You just follow Jesus. Just hold his hand, and wherever he walks, you walk with him. doesn't have to be much harder than that. Because remember, he did all the heavy lifting. He did all the work. So, church, my encouragement to you today is when Jesus nudges you, don't resist. Give in. And not submit. I mean, submit, yes, but don't just submit. Surrender. Surrender to Jesus. Surrender to the call. Surrender to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Surrender to the will of God. And just see what great, wonderful, incredible things will happen. I want to pray for you as I pray for myself. And then Allison's going to share some announcements. And then we'll close with a song. Lord, how 
how difficult it is for us to trust you. How difficult it is when we stand up on that board, <laughs> that metaphorical diving board, that high board, and we look over the edge and we think, uh-uh, no way, no how. And yet, God, if we're willing to trust you, we, we really can experience something great. So God, I'm praying for myself and I'm praying for our church, for anyone who's with us or watching today. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to get over ourselves and to get over our fears and to get over any crankiness, get over any disappointment, get over any of that stuff that holds us back. And let's be adventurous. Let's go for it. Help us to just, wherever you're leading, to just follow. And Lord, we know in our heads that if we do that, we're going to be okay. But our feelings sometimes uh, keep us. There's that, there's that deeper fear that's inside that we don't even acknowledge that we just don't believe that it's true. We don't believe that you're trustworthy. We don't believe that you're faithful. We don't believe that you're good. But God, reveal your goodness to us. Break down those walls. Overcome those hardships and barriers and hurdles. And draw us into a deeper following of you. And God, before we leave today, help each one of us to address our own areas of holding back. Help each one of us, before we leave this building or turn off this Zoom call, to, to take stock of where we are holding back. Not to be guilty and shame-filled about, about it, but to see it and say, Lord, help me with specifically this. Help me directly with that. To be brave, to be trusting, to be faith-filled so I can be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.